Hello and welcome to You, Me and the Economy. As the world plunges into a deeper global debt crisis in the wake of the Ukraine-Russia war and the aftermath of the pandemic, we need to look at the situation in Sri Lanka more closely. Here is your weekly roundup of economy and finance. Our leaders today have a knack for taking drastic decisions overnight without thinking of repercussions they pose to millions. We had similar experience in India with demonetization and COVID lockdowns. In the same vein, the Mahindra Rajapaksha government took the drastic call to ban the import of chemical fertilizers last year, which proved disastrous for the island nation. While this was supposedly done to embrace organic farming, the real reason seemed to lay in its huge external debt of around $35 billion. This led the government to clamp down on crucial imports in order to save foreign exchange. The situation today is such that the cost of milk powder has shot up by 153 rupees and cooking gas is costing over 1000 rupees. India has crucial lessons to learn from this unfolding crisis which has led to immense humanitarian suffering and widespread discontent. The Kerala finance minister said that the economic crisis in Sri Lanka is a result of its aggressive globalization and ill-conceived borrowing policy, a path that India is also taking. The Lankan crisis is a case study of what exactly breeds under a regime of reckless consumption promoted by global MNCs, IMF and the World Bank. It also highlights the perils of complete reliance on the market. So while the immediate reasons certainly lie in the pandemic affecting its tourism sector or the more recent Ukraine war, the crisis was long in the making. It can be traced back to the IMF diktats that made it more dependent on foreign aid while it cut down on subsidies and wages. And much like in India after liberalization that needed an enemy to distract people from the consequent hardships, they whipped Sinhala chauvinism against the Tamils. Finally, while India has provided urgent relief in the form of 2.5 billion US dollars, fuel line of credit worth 500 million dollars, food, medicines and so on, sections within Sri Lanka are skeptical. They have even accused that the Adani group has been given undue advantages as India has leveraged the crisis to seal the deal on several mega infrastructure and energy projects in Sri Lanka. Back home, we have another crisis in making. In yet another instance of Modi government intervening in the functioning of public institutions, an investigation by the Reporters Collective shows how the government sought to influence the Reserve Bank of India in order to make changes in the monetary regulations. The government pushed for a policy which would have made borrowings cheaper for businesses and citizens, but which could have led to inflation adversely affecting the poor. RBI, on the other hand, was seeking to keep inflation under control. The investigation brings out the communication and letters between RBI governors and the government which conforms to the conflict. Investigation further shows that inflation soared after the imposition of national lockdown in March 2020. But the finance ministry refused to regard the inflation figures by the statistics ministry because the government feared that by asking the RBI to keep inflation under control, it would be compelled to raise the interest rates to temper inflation at a time when the government favored rate cuts to revive an economy that collapsed under lockdown last year. The finance ministry gave RBI an exemption and the central bank did not hike borrowing costs. 
The investigative report shows how the key goals of an independent monetary policy framed in 2016, transparency and accountability, were defeated four years later. With solutions to the ongoing debt crisis across the world yet to be reached, progress is urgently needed. Despite a declining global context, countries are due to resume payments on their debt obligations in December 2021, following the G20's Debt Service Suspension Initiative or DSSI. Of the 73 LICs eligible for the DSSI, only 43 applied for a total of 13 billion dollars of debt service suspension. This is accounting for just a quarter of the amount the G20 announced the DSSI would deliver in April 2020. Ineffectiveness was attributed to the DSSI's temporary suspension of bilateral debt payments and lack of involvement of the private sector. This happened despite civil society warnings and IMF leadership acknowledging that it is also crucial that private sector creditors implement debt relief on comparable terms. A January analysis by the UK-based Jubilee Debt Campaign found that 54 countries globally are in a debt crisis, meaning that debt payments are undermining the ability of governments to protect the basic economic and social rights of their citizens. According to an article by the US-based think tank Atlantic Council, these LICs face debt service payments worth 11 billion dollars more this year, threatening to crowd out urgently needed public spending on health, social services, and other development needs. The DSSI did nothing to address countries' long-term debt obligations, which were exacerbated by the pandemic. Further, the Ukraine crisis will worsen the outlook for many countries already in debt crisis. Since increased import costs will lead to worsening balance of payment problems including the inability of countries to service debts. US-based think tank Atlantic Council together with DFR Lab, Sheffield Hallam University, Helena Kennedy Center for International Justice and Nomo Gaia published a report alleging that investments by the International Finance Corporation, the World Bank's private sector lending arm have contributed to grave human rights violations of Uyghur and other minorities in China. The report noted that significant evidence suggests that several of IFC's clients are active participants in the implementation of PRC's campaign of repression against the Uyghurs, including forced labor, forced displacement, cultural erasure and environmental destruction. Research undertaken by the authors indicate that the IFC currently has approximately 486 million dollars in direct loans and equity investments in four companies operating in the Uyghur region. It called on the IFC and other development finance institutions to divest from all corporate investments in the Uyghur region and recommended IFC and other DFIs to presume that all operating companies in the region are engaged in forced labor and also carry risk of complicity in the ongoing genocide. It asked the IFC and other DFIs to review and adjust their direct and indirect investment portfolios and to move sub-investment subcontracts and supply chains out of the Uyghur region. The report also noted that the IFC should conduct a full review of its portfolio, including financial intermediary investments using the methods employed in the report. Thanks for listening to this episode. 
For more stories, check out our website www.senfa.org and keep listening to Yumi and the Economy.